podcast. My name is Jason Austin and I'm a book buyer for Readings in Carlton. Today I'm here with novelist Anna George, the author of an amazing new novel called The Lost Child. Welcome to the podcast, Anna. Hi, thank you. Anna has worked in law and in film and television industries. Her first book, What Came Before, was shortlisted for the 2015 Ned Kelly Award. It was also shortlisted for the Sisters in Crime Best Debut Fiction Award and longlisted for the 2016 International Dublin Literary Award. It's also been translated into Dutch and German. It's a riveting psychological thriller about love gone wrong set in Melbourne's inner west. Her new book, The Lone Child, is a similarly gripping tale. It follows the story of two women grappling with motherhood. Neve Ayres is an architect who has retreated to her luxurious holiday house in Flinders, here in Victoria, after the father of her newborn child has left her while she was pregnant. The other woman is Lee Chalmers, who is the mother of the titular lone child. Lee, too, has found herself unexpectedly a single parent with two daughters aged under five. The two women's lives intersect when Neve finds Leah's daughter playing alone in the coastal town. Congratulations on this fantastic new novel, Anna. I, I love this book so much. It's really sucked me in from the beginning. Um, this was your second published novel, Uh what did you learn from any feedback you received from your readers of what came before? That's a good question. Um, when the book first came out, I told myself not to read reviews and um, feedback from readers on general websites and whatnot, but I couldn't help myself, so I did. And I think probably one of the key lessons I've learned is not to do that because you may have, you know, 100 positive um, reviews up there, but it's the one negative one that sticks in your mind yeah. and then talks to you when you sit back down to write again. So yeah. that's probably one of the things I learned more as a writer than in terms of writing. Uh, and something else, I guess, about the book that I didn't realise as I was writing it was that it was a page turner and people gobbled it up in one or two settings which, mm. or sittings, which was really good to hear. But it took me about 12 years to write. Mm. And I sort of felt myself thinking, could you just go and read it again? Because it took <laughs> a really long time to put together. So, you know, there are some surprises, I guess, when you put a book out, you don't quite know how people are going to respond to it. Yeah. Um, and then moving forward, you have to manage all those different opinions and uh, the feedback that you do get. And this time around, I, we'll see how I go with my pledge not to read um, reviews. Yeah, it's probably a bit hard, I guess, as a, an author to kind of shut that information out. Yeah, well, sometimes they're constructive too. You know, you can get some really good uh, feedback from readers that resonates uh, on a writing level and you think, yeah, you've nailed that one. Mm. <laughs> I take on board what you're saying there. So, that, I mean, it can be helpful. And that was how I was reading it originally. But I thought, I think I need to stop now. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so I guess you, you, you sort of trying to... Um, you didn't. It didn't change the way you wrote the book in a way because, well, it did it did change the the way you, you were writing the book because of, because of all that. But um, mm. yeah. Would would you mind writing, reading a piece sure. from the book for us? I'm going to read from the very opening of the book, the first couple of pages. Fantastic. Give us a bit of a okay. flavour. Yep. So here we go. Thursday. Nevers pretended she didn't know the baby strapped to her chest. He was still crying, his thin, newly alive cry. She tried to focus on the metronomic wash of the sea and the pungent blankets of seagrass underfoot. 
the colours rust, charcoal and mossy green, but the baby's cries caught on a gust circled her head, obliterating everything. She stopped, puffing, damn her widowhood. Maybe widowhood wasn't quite the right word, but she didn't know the term for losing a husband who wasn't yours. That he was alive also made the term slightly inaccurate. However, these last 12 weeks, that was definitely how she'd felt. Widowed. Westernport was deserted and the, and the day felt wintry and faintly hostile. The outgoing tide was revealing the rocks like the surface of an uninhabitable planet. She growled into the wind. As if offended, nearby seabirds flapped into the sky and the baby attached to her chest thrashed. She felt him straining against his sleeping bag, which she'd fitted with the superhuman ingenuity expected of a newborn's mum, to the harness. His cries mingled with hers. Her breasts felt tight with milk and her nipples tingled. The leash she was on was cruelly short, with only two hours separating his feeds. Her routine, which had worked for the first six weeks, had gone to pot these last two, despite the legion of mothering books she'd brought with her. She stumbled, so much for his sleep and her walk. The Flinders jetty was a measly 500 metres to the south, but too far for her. There, adults fished peaceably. Until now, she'd avoided the locals, but today she'd imagined mumbling a greeting as she walked behind their hunched parka-clad backs and their part-filled buckets. She'd been prepared to talk about the weather. As she turned for home, the clouds split. A column of sunlight appeared bright and wide and captured a patch of sand by the water's edge around 40 metres away. She paused, transfixed by the simple beauty of light. A moment later, a figure danced across the spotlit sand. Bare-legged and tiny, it was draped in ropes of weed and swirling, making the tendrils fly. A lone child, resplendent, ethereal, lit up. Neve wiped her eyes, but the child remained. She scanned the windswept foreshore. Who was responsible for it? Beyond the mounds of seaweed, the sand stretched towards the long grass and bracken. Above the beach, a dozen split-level houses were braced into the hill. At the end of the beach, a dirt path led up to the road. The beachscape, even the vast and eclectic balconies of her neighbours' holiday homes, was empty. Damn, she thought, not me. Where the sand met the water, the sunlight disappeared, but oblivious, the figure danced on. The only real full-size children Neve knew lived interstate and were her younger half-sisters. And she was a shocking aunt, forgetting birthdays at times' names. She had yet to perfect the tone with children. She couldn't recall the tone her parents used, and she detested the sing-song pitch favoured by so many over-smiling adults. More often than not, she ignored her nieces and nephews, and they ignored her. She could, she supposed, simply keep walking. But the child was skipping through the maze of rock pools now. Despite the stretch of beach, only it and bird life moved. No breathless mother or frazzled father appeared. No dog walkers or joggers, not even another lonely widow. The day was too cold, the clouds too low. It was the Thursday before Easter, the cusp of the school holidays. Everyone else had better things to do. Her baby's cries were persisting. Perhaps he was overtired, beyond sleep. She sighed. What was required of her now, one stranger to another? Hmm, thank you for that. It's it's interesting. It's I think I've we're quite often in that situation, aren't we? I, I know I, I've sort of come across a, a child in the store alone, and you know, quite quite kind of distressed in most cases. But um, but yeah, it is it is sort of um, hard to know what to do in that situation where you are the responsible adult and you've got somebody else's child there mm. um um what do you think is 
required us required of us as strangers of lone children in in this sort of circumstance and do you think that the hesitancy that some feel in involving themselves in interacting with that child is warranted mm. Look, I think um, it'd be a fairly hard-hearted person to keep running on the beach, say, seeing a child like this um, left on her own. Or uh, I've been in a situation too, you know, I'm a mother of little children and um, I've seen stray lost children, you know, at the aquarium or, you know, on the beach at a picnic ground. And I find it impossible not to go and help if they're, you know, you watch them for a bit and they're continuing to be lost and distressed. You know, I I step Mm. in and help and I think probably most people would. You do have that moment's hesitancy where you think, is this going to go well? Is this going to be perceived well? Or um, is the child going to respond well to this? You don't want to, you know, distress the child even further by having some stranger come and approach him or her. But I think, you know, generally we owe sort of responsibility to or have a responsibility to care for each other. So if someone's lost, I would like to think, um, if my children were lost, I'd like to think someone would help them. Someone would interact, yeah, yeah, interact. yeah for mm. sure. Um, from the very beginning of the book, Neve is, um, she's kind of disgusted by the lack of care the girl is given. Uh, and as the story plays out, we realise that all is not as it seems with Leah Mm-hmm. Um, she's really struggling and doing the best that she can in the in the circumstance that she's in. Um, do you think there's a lot of judgment between parents as to the policing and parenting styles of mm. of um, parents? Absolutely, I think there can be for sure. I think Neve is judgmental in the book. That's what I wanted to explore um, people's mm. judgments with each other, uh, and I think in particular um, parents can be very judgmental. I think to an extent we're sort of making it up as we go along when we're parenting and I'm reading um, Brene Brown's book at the moment, Daring Greatly, and she talks about parents judging each other and she says something along the lines of we uh, parents judge other people's parenting because it makes our parenting right and the other person's parenting wrong. So if we uh, look at some parenting and we don't approve of it, that will reinforce to us our sense that we're getting it right. So that's sort of a motivation to judge in a way. Mm. And ultimately, I think the more insecure you are about something, the more judgmental you potentially can Mm. be about it. Um, So we're all making it up as we go along and doing it a certain way. And we see people doing it differently to how we're doing it. And so there's a temptation there to be judgmental about that. Mm. Yeah, which isn't obviously good, you know. No, no. No. Everyone does things differently. They do. And in terms of policing, that's an interesting question. I haven't myself experienced people policing my parenting or people's parenting in my vicinity. Um, I have, have had elder people might come up to you and tell you, you know, you're doing a good job or hang in there or it gets better or, you know, Mm. they give you some commentary so you feel conspicuous and observed as a parent. Um, But I've certainly been, you know, as a teenager, I remember um, driving up to the snow with a family and the mother I was with turning around and telling off the mother at the table behind us for how that mother was treating her children and I was mortified. So I was really embarrassed and really shocked that she was stepping out of her her world to tell this other woman that she was doing it wrong. So, yes, it does happen, absolutely. Is it a very awkward moment for everybody Very awkward, involved? yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I, I, I love that the story, the, the, the book itself, it's, um, each chapter is almost like a standalone drama. It swivels between the two storylines. Um, and as a, as a reader with a short attention span, that's fantastic. Um, mm. 
uh, it's yeah the two storylines between Neve and, and Leah, and I love this this device in 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 the book. Um, I was so invested in both storylines. I was a little more riveted with Leah's storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot going on with that character. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, the, you wrote the panic and the desperation that she experiences uh, at losing her daughter so well, and it was almost anxiety-inducing to some some degree. Um, The other interesting thing about using this device is that it gives such a view of these women's lives being so different from a sort of socioeconomic level, Mm. Um, yet in a lot of ways the emotions that they're feeling are so similar. Mm. Uh, Did you – how did you achieve this and – and did you find it harder to write one character than, mm, than the other? Than the other, yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, I researched around um, the situations of both characters. So I spoke to architects in relation to um, Neve's character mm. and um, I interviewed people. Um, Leah's an aged care worker, so I interviewed aged care workers. Um, and... I guess Neve is closer to me and my situation. I've had a pretty privileged upbringing in terms of my education and um, my job prospects and whatnot. Um, So she was a little closer. But um, through the research, I guess, uh, I could build um, Leah. And also, you know, they're both two women. They're both experiencing parenting in totally different ways. One has a lot of money. One has very little money. Um, I imagine my way into all my characters. So I imagine my way into Leah and I imagine my way into Neve. And once I did that and they became more fleshed out, it was easier to get going. I think I was probably hesitant about um, Leah and wanting to get her right. But once I sort of felt like I was embodying her, I was able to, to... hopefully capture her yeah, authentically. Yeah, I, you know? I felt that she was captured beautifully, mm. really. Mm, well, thank um, you. Yeah, it's almost like you almost sort of know people like mm. that are in her situation and, and yeah, just, you know, things like the mobile phone doesn't have battery mm. and the car breaks down at the wrong time and mm. all those things are just so real. Mm, yeah, mm. so no, I thought you caught it beautifully. Mm, thanks. Um it, it's a bit to sort of lead on from that, I guess. Leah is, it, she's sort of, she has this fear that her kids are going to be taken away from her. Um, when, do you, do you think there's ever really a time when it's okay for a child to be removed from a parent in mm, that respect? Mm. It's a really tricky question. It is a very but, tricky question. And I don't, you know, I'm not an expert in uh, this area and I don't know the law in it, but from a you know, common sense point of view, I think taking a child from a parent would be a last resort act. Mm. Um, You would do that when you thought the child was at real risk of significant harm, you know, emotional, psychological harm, um, physical harm. So it's not something I'm sure um, I wouldn't want to see it done lightly, but I think it's going to be necessary in some instances. Mm. Um, And I can imagine it'd be a great fear um, to have that hanging over your head if you thought you were in that camp. That would be awful. Sure. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, do, you, do you think that, uh, as a mother yourself, do you think parents are able to admit how hard parenthood can be? Um, and do you think that, as a writer and also as a parent, it takes courage to um, write about parenthood with uh, honesty, with you know, sort of, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, look, interesting questions. I think um, some parents admit how hard it is. Some parents don't. Perhaps some parents don't find it hard. I've sort of 
I'm a bit baffled by that, but there must be people out there that don't find it hard. I think the amount of support that you get as a parent would really impact how hard you find it. Mm. Um, the more support you have or can access, potentially, um, the less difficult it may be. Mm. Um, Both women are kind of going through that as well. They, are, they, they don't, don't have really family have support. support. No, yeah. one of them has money, one of them doesn't. They uh, are not connected to their peers for various reasons. One's kind of put herself in a position of isolation and the other one's probably there through shame, hiding. Um, so, look, some people definitely admit to how difficult parenting is. I was away last week with my family and I bumped into another family who was away at the same place and I had a tiny chat with this mum and we bumped into each other at the restaurant and we bumped into each other somewhere else and in like 20 minutes she was saying, oh, this is just so hard and I was saying, hang in there. We've been, <laughs> we've been here two nights and get see there easier and she's saying, you know, I just want to cry and go home because she was with two boys. They were full on. They weren't going to sleep. They weren't doing what they were told, you know, and I thought, wow, we didn't even know each other's names and sort of the good luck off you go yeah. and we said goodbye but I thought that was really refreshing. It was brave. It was honest and we both connected on that level straight away. Mm, yeah. Um, and hopefully she felt better after she sat yeah. a little longer. It's but almost like you were paying paying that forward as well yeah. from people who had said the same thing to you as well. I guess so. Yeah. 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 It's a part of the process of parenting that you do find it really hard sometimes. Um, what was the second part of your question? Um, <laughs> the, the second part of my question was... Um, does it take courage as a writer? Ah, uh, yes, to write about it, parenting. Um, I think about that as well in the context of Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly. I don't know if you've read it. It came out maybe no, five years ago. No. It's um, it's a fabulous book about vulnerability and shame and daring and courage. And I don't really think in those terms, but reading the book, she talks about revealing yourself, making yourself vulnerable is an act of courage. Um, and I think as a writer, that's just what you do. You know, the publication process is all about, you feel mm. like you're bearing um, yourself, your creativity to, for the world to see. So not necessarily for me about the parenting, it's just the act of writing, yeah. you know, it's quite... Um, vulnerable making, I want to say, which isn't very elegant at all, but it makes you feel very vulnerable. Yeah. And perhaps it's courageous to keep doing it in the light of that. Um, yeah. yeah. So I guess you've kind of answered my next question, which was, um, you know, sort of that the parents feel a sense of shame when they're, when if their parenting skills aren't, mm. aren't sort of um, are less than perfect, mm. I guess. Well, I think some people no doubt do. I probably think in terms of guilt rather than shame for myself. Right. Um, you know, do scream at one of my children and think, oh, I really wish I didn't do that <laughs> or I hadn't just done that. Um, probably not shame as such, but I'm sure um, there would be people, or I suspect there would be people out there who feel ashamed of um, how they're managing their, their children. Yeah. 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 If, is it um, why do you think parents don't ask for help when they're struggling yeah. like this? Do, is it is it that th thing of um, having to feel like you're on top of it, I mm, guess, and mm. um, or whether? Mm. Well, look, it's hard. Obviously, with these questions, I can't speak for all parents, and yeah, um, I can only course. speak yeah. from my own experience and you know from what I've observed. For myself, um, sometimes you don't know where to go to get help. Um, maybe you don't know you need help, you don't know that you're not coping and it's only in hindsight you look back and realise I wasn't coping very well then. Um, you, yeah, like I say, you don't know where to go for that help. You don't know what help is available. Sometimes you ask for help, it's not there, mm. you know. People are busy, you, you know, you look around and you, uh, I've got some really dear friends that I ask 
for help from them. Uh, and I feel a bit guilty when I do it because I know they're, they've got their children and they're juggling all of that. But um, I think sometimes it's difficult and some people don't, like you say, they don't want to admit they're not coping. They yeah. don't want to admit that they're not yeah. the perfect parent they want to be. Yeah. So they stay home and hide. Which um, I guess is what the book is is all about in a way, isn't mm, it? It's like the, mm. the, the two women are both having problems coping mm. with parenthood and yeah. um, they're just... They don't have any of that help either. No, and I think so. Leah would be motivated by shame. She wouldn't be stepping forward. And also as she feels that if she steps forward, she may risk losing her children. Mm. So she has real concerns around that. Um, and in Nia's case, I think she's not aware of herself enough to know she's not coping. Right, yeah. She doesn't yeah. have that um, self-awareness at this point. It's all very early and she's very self-involved, I guess. Yeah. Um, and she's not seeing it through her baby's point of view either. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and, and having like, a newborn is, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a big thing. It's a big thing and it's a big shock, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, the The book has a, it has a lot of talking points and I can really see it as being one that's going to be picked up by a lot of book clubs and because there is just so much to talk about in the book. Mm. Um, what, what sort of conversations do you hope sort of kickstart? Mm. You hope to kickstart with the book? Mm. I guess... Um, you know, Neve is pretty judgmental and people would think about that and reflect on that and whether they see themselves in what she might be thinking and saying sometimes and realise that, um, you know, we're just talking about other people here, but you can uh, dehumanise people mm. through your judgement and it's about sort of getting to act to empathy. So if people could talk about empathy and understanding different people's points of view and positions and, sh you know, have a chat about that. There's also um, another character, a third character, Cell, who has a smaller role, but he has his own point of view too. He's a stonemason that comes into the story um, and becomes a friend to Neve. He's just recently lost his mother. So there's a bit of a thread in the book around um, people losing their mothers or not having their mothers as adults. And uh, He's grieving the loss of his mother and he is feeling her around him and looking for signs of her, hoping that, you know, she might just turn up and give him a message from the afterlife because that's what she started to believe in before she died. So there's a little bit there around the afterlife and... Um, and the comfort that you might get and grieving and um, and Sal learns from his from his doctor, you know, that it's not uncommon for people to see others who've passed on or their loved ones who've passed on, you know, whether they see them sitting at the end of the bed or hanging the clones along the line or something kind of banal, but they're mm. out there, you know, giving comfort in a way just by being there. Yeah. So I was interested in that a little bit too. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, this is kind of a technical question, I guess, mm. about the writing process. But um, what what... Can you tell me about the decisions you made in keeping things out and um, leaving things in mm. to the in the novel? Was, okay. that, was that a hard process? Like, uh, I tend to write a little bit long by maybe ten or fifteen thousand words, and then I cut words out. That's not that hard because by the time I've written a, a gnarly first or second draft, I can see what's not meant to be there, so I go through and cull. More in this book, it was how to structure the book because as you've touched on mm. we've got the three points of view two more major ones and Leah's point of view at one point I have, I have them intercut in the book at the moment and at one stage in the writing process I wondered about pulling all of Leah's point of view out and bunching it together and giving it to the reader at about the two thirds or three quarter mark right. which is a pretty risky thing to do and it's kind yeah. of what you're not really meant to do in terms of um, how to structure <laughs> multiple points of view but I thought I'll try it I wondered if that would um, add something to the book, you know, 
as it turned out, my editor came back and said, oh, do you want to have another think about that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't really mind, but what do you think? You know, have another read. And so I thought, yeah, Leah's section really serves the purpose of driving the pace of the book, yeah, yeah, which in my first book I had a character's um, section do that as well. It was Mira in the first book, what came before. So it had to get spliced back in. So yeah. it wasn't so much what to leave in and out in terms of story. It was more how to structure it and how to make the story work, how to tell the story the best way. Yeah. 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 No, it's um, yeah. These these parts were. I can see why you sort of structured it that way. Mm. Um, uh, the novel is mostly set in Flinders and around the peninsula around Melbourne. Um, you, you obviously, it's like an area where you obviously spend a lot of time because mm. you can actually feel it. Or you can feel it. So, did you you grew up around? That no, area? no, no, but I've holidayed there quite a lot. Um, my parents have a house there, and we used to share a house with another family. So we spent quite a lot of time in the last twenty years there. So not you know younger than that but um lots of long weekends and lots of easters at mm. flinders yeah yeah and you know the the street i talk about where neve's house is is pretty spectacular a row of houses there that jut out over the cliff and look at the sea and that's wow. kind of cropped up they've become a bit more spectacular i suppose in the last decade or so yeah so i've always looked at them and thought wow imagine sitting up there and looking out at that view so that's why i set my you could Im- <laughs> my imagine, imagine yeah somebody yeah, actually doing that that's right yeah. and at one stage one of those houses had been for sale in the last couple of years and so i could walk around it in on the online um, real estate website, looking at this house, imagining myself sitting in it. So it's quite <laughs> handy. <laughs> yeah. And what gave you the idea for the for the book? Like, did you uh, take uh, inspiration from newspaper articles or yeah. anything like that? I think I have things that concern me and um, anger me that I walk around thinking about. And you know, inequality is one of those things that. Um, I think about. Uh, And then I stumble across news stories and that gives me a way to explore those things that I'm angry about. So this story came about when a news story um, came to the fore of a little girl who was missing in New South Wales and her parents, her mother and her stepfather were on the news saying that she'd been taken from her bedroom or from from their apartment and she was missing and they were upset. They looked like they were struggling financially and they were, they were young and I think there was a level of judgment and flack that was coming their way from their community and from the media. Mm. And uh, over time it became a bit more apparent as to why that flack was there. But when I was watching it, I was thinking there's something very hostile towards these people. Um, is it classist? Is it, where's the judgment coming from? And the mother actually said to the press at one point or in an interview, don't you judge me, you don't know me, don't you judge me. And I thought she was very defensive and quite angry. Yeah. As it turned out, she had killed her daughter and right. buried her and um, and she had had another child die uh, as an infant, as a baby from SIDS. Or, and I, I think the local community had some opinions there as to whether she was involved in the death of that baby as well. So right. she'd basically had two of her children die. Um, but I was... So I was, had a fantasy. What if you saw that little girl who was, I can't remember now, maybe she was five, before she, that had happened to mm. her, what if you could save that child, pluck her from that 
um, path and and save her. And the book, I started toying around, you know, the pure steal the child, save the child kind of story. And I thought, no, I don't really want to go down that path. I don't want to explore that. It became more, what if you found the child? What if she appeared abandoned? What if she appeared neglected? What if you had all this judgment around her parenting based on how the child presents? Hmm. And you make all these decisions as I thought people were making potentially about this this um, young couple on the news. And then I started teasing that out. Yeah. Yeah, and it shifted away, obviously, a lot from uh, that original news story. But um, the issues came to light through that. Yeah. Because mm. Neve doesn't really want to give the child up, does she? Like she's, no. Yeah. She, she warms to her and, um, and she sees pluck in the child and she sees elements of herself in the child. So, um, yeah, but I didn't want to go too far down that path, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Did you start working on... The Lone Child long after the release of What Came Before? Uh, I was actually working on it before the release of What Came Before. Oh, so okay. when I first sent What Came Before out on submission to publishers back in sort of 2012, I started writing this book because what do you do when you send your book off? You start writing another book because what else are you going to do? So hmm. I came up, you know, with the idea, as I just said, and just started writing it, not really knowing where it was going to go or what would be me out of it. Uh, and then got the two book deal when I got the deal for What Came Before and this I hastily put together a synopsis for this book um, and that's how it came to light. And then I wrote it through the process of editing and um, publication of what came before. Right, okay. And there were some fits and starts there, like I mentioned before, with the structure of the book changing and and I probably wasn't great at meeting my deadlines, I must confess. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's taken a while now, I guess, um, but 2012 with a few breaks. It started back then. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's... um. And you're obviously already working on the third one. Yeah, novel. I'm working on the third one too, yeah. And you probably don't want to talk about that. <laughs> it's um, like being a little bit pregnant when you talk about a book that's really new. You don't really want to yeah. use it yet. It's not quite there yet to discuss, but yeah, give course. it a bit more time. Yeah, so um, I just sort of keep moving away from the book a bit now. I just, I just wanted to ask, what is your all-time favourite book? It's mm-hmm, just a mm-hmm. general question. That's but tricky. I love, a question I like to ask people. Okay. Uh, look... It's probably Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout. Yeah, yeah. that's a book that just stays with me. I have lots of books over time that I love, but the ones that stay with me, I I remember, you know. I've loved Notes on a Scandal that comes up when I think of um, favourite books, but particularly Olive Kitteridge. Yeah. Yeah. Elizabeth Strout's writing in that book. Yeah. It's beautiful. Did you see the... TV I haven't seen it. No, no. no. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've heard so good things good. about it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to watch it. Yeah, it's yeah. so good. Um, but the question that we like to always ask towards the end of the um, the podcast is, uh, what book are you reading or what are you watching or mm-hmm. what are you listening to at the moment? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Well, I'm in research mode, actually. So like I've said a few times, I'm reading Brene Brown's Daring Greatly. I'm reading Sarah Wilson's um, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, about uh, anxiety. Yeah. I've just read Being 14, I think it's by um, Madonna King. Yeah. And um, in terms of fiction, I've just read The Incredible Here and Now by Felicity Castagno. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really good. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And do you get much time to watch television at all? <laughs> uh, I've just started watching Limitless, uh, the Netflix series Limitless, because I really liked the movie and I would desperately, I would love to have a pill where you could access all of your brain <laughs> like that and remember everything you've ever read. So we've just started watching that. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Mm. Yeah, so... Oh, thank you so much for joining me today, Anna. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. You've been listening to Anna George discuss her amazing new book, The Lost Child. 
The Lost Child's available from all reading stores. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast on our website, readings.com.au, where you'll also find news, reviews and interviews, information on our current book, music and DVD releases. You can even sign up to our newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.